Welcome to Meaningful Words About and By Meaningful People. I'm Dominique Marslek, and today we start part two of our coverage of Emmeline Pankhurst. Emmeline was born July 15th, 1858, and died June 14th, 1928. Emmeline was a British political activist best remembered for organizing the suffragette movement and helping women win the right to vote. In 1999, Time named her one of the 100 most important people of the 20th century. We are picking up where we left off last episode with Emmeline Pankhurst's Freedom or Death speech given in Hartford, Connecticut, November 13, 1913. <clears throat> Quote, I have been in audiences where I have seen men smile when they hear the words hunger strike. And yet I think there are very few men today who would be prepared to adopt a hunger strike for any cause. It is only people who feel an intolerable sense of oppression who would adopt a means of that kind. I know of no people who did it before us except revolutionaries in Russia who adopted the hunger strike against intolerable prison conditions. While our women decided to terminate those unjust sentences at the earliest possible moment by the terrible means of the hunger strike. It means you refuse food until you are at death's door, and then the authorities have to choose between letting you die and letting you go, and then they let the women go. Now that went on so long that the government felt they had lost their power and that they were unable to cope with the situation. Then it it was that, to the shame of the British government, they set the example to authorities all over the world by feeding sane, resisting human beings through force. There may be doctors in this meeting. If so, they know it is one thing to treat an insane person, to feed by force an insane person or a patient who has some form of illness which makes such feeding necessary. But it is quite another to feed a sane, resisting human being who resists with every nerve and with every fiber of her body the indignity and outrage of forcible feeding. Now that was done in England, and the government thought they had crushed us, but they found that it did not quell the agitation, that more and more women came in and even passed that terrible ordeal and that they, would not, they were not able, with all of their forcible feeding, to make women serve out their unjust sentences. They were obliged to let them go. Then came the legislation to which I have referred, the legislation which is known in England as the, quote, Cat and Mouse Act. It got through the British House of Commons because the Home Secretary assured the House of Commons that he wanted the bill passed in the interests of humanity. He said he was a humane man and he did not like having to resort to forcible feeding. 
He wanted the House of Commons to give him some way of disposing of them, and this was his way. He said, Give me the power to let these women go when they are at death's door, and leave them at liberty under license until they have recovered their health again, and then bring them back. Leave it to me to fix the time of their licenses, leave it in my hands altogether to deal with this intolerable situation. Because the laws must be, must be obeyed and people who are sentenced for breaking the law must be served to complete their sentences. Well, the House of Commons passed the law. They said as soon as the women get a taste of this, they will give up. In fact, it was passed to repress the agitation, to make the women yield. Because that is what it has really come to, ladies and gentlemen. It has come to a battle between the women and the government as to who shall yield first. Whether they will yield and give us the vote, or whether we will give up our agitation. Well, they little know what women are. Women are very slow to rouse, but once they have been aroused, once they are determined, nothing on earth and nothing in heaven will make women give way. It is impossible. And so this cat and mouse act, which is being used against women today, has failed. And the Home Secretary has taken advantage of the fact that Parliament is not sitting to revive and use alongside of it the forcible feeding. At the present time, there are women lying at death's door, recovering enough strength to undergo operations, who have had both systems applied to them and have not given in and won't give in and who will be prepared as soon as they get up from their sick beds to go on as before. There are women who are being carried from their sick beds on stretchers into meetings. They are too weak to speak, but they go amongst their fellow workers just to show that their spirits are unquenched and that their spirit is alive and they mean to go on as long as life lasts. Now I want to say to you who think women cannot succeed, we have brought the government of England to this position that it has to face this alternative, either women are to be killed or women are to have the vote. I ask American men in this meeting, what would you say if in your state you were faced with that alternative, that you must either kill them or give them their citizenship? Women, many of whom you respect, women whom you have lived useful lives, women whom you know, even if you do not know them personally, are animated with the highest motives, women who are in pursuit of liberty and the power to do useful public service. Well, there is only one answer to that alternative. There is only one way out of it, unless you are prepared to put back civilization two or three generations, you must give those women the vote. Now that is the outcome of our civil war. You won your freedom in America when you had the revolution by bloodshed, by sacrificing human life. 
You won the Civil War by the sacrifice of human life when you decided to emancipate the Negroes. You have left it to women in your land. The man of all civilized countries have left it to women to work out their own salvation. That is the way in which we women of England are doing. Human life for us is sacred. But we say if any life is to be sacrificed, it shall be ours. We won't do it ourselves, but we will put the enemy in the position where they will have to choose between giving us freedom or giving us death. Now, whether you approve of us or whether you do not, you must see that we have brought the question of women's suffrage into a position where it is of first-rate importance, where it can be ignored no longer. Even the most hardened politician will hesitate to take upon himself directly the responsibility of sacrificing the lives of undoubted honor, of undoubted earnestness, of purpose. That is the political situation as I lay it before you today. Now then, let me say something about what has brought it about, because you must realize that only the very strongest of motives would lead women to do what we have done. Life is sweet to all of us. Every human being loves life and loves to enjoy the good things and the happiness that life brings. And yet we have a state of things in England that has made not two or three women, but thousands of women quite prepared to face these terrible situations that I have been trying without any kind of passion or exaggeration to lay before you. While I might spend two or three nights dealing with the industrial situation as it affects women, with the legal position of women, with the social position of women, I there is the condition of the working women. One of the things which gives strength to our agitation is that the women who are taking an active part in it are not the poorest women, are not the overworked women. They are the women who are held to be fortunate, the women who have no special personal grievance of their own. Those women have taken up this fight for their own sake. It is true, because they wish to be free, but chiefly for the sake of the women less fortunate than themselves. The industrial workers of Great Britain have an average wage, mind you, not a minimum wage, an average wage of less than $2 a week. Think what would happen in any country if the men in industry of that country had to subsist on a wage like that. Thousands upon thousands of these women, because there are over 5 million wage earners in my country, thousands of these women have dependents. They are women with children dependent upon them, deserted wives with children dependent on them, or wives with sick husbands. They are unmarried mothers, or they are unmarried women who have old parents or younger brothers and sisters or sick relatives who depend on them. Their average income, taking the highly skilled woman teacher and averaging her wage with the unskilled home worker, the average income is less than $2 a week. There you have in itself an, expl an explanation of an uprising of a very determined kind to secure better conditions. And when you know that the government is the largest employer of all the employers and sets a horribly bad example to the private employer in the wages that it pays to women, there you have another explanation. Constant economies 
are being affected in government by the substitution of women's labor for men's. And there is always a reduction in wages whenever women are employed. That is the industrial situation. To speak of the sweated home worker would take too long. But there are women, women even with dependents, only able to earn three or four shillings a week, thousands of them, and having to pay with the increased cost of living, exorbitant rents in our great cities for single rooms so that you get several families in one room. They cannot afford even to have a room for themselves. So much for the industrial situation. Now then, let me say something about what has brought it about. Because you must realize that only the very strongest of motives would lead women to do what we have done. Life is sweet to all of us. Every human being loves life and loves to enjoy the good things and the happiness that life gives. And yet, we have a state of things in England that has made not two or three women, but thousands of women quite prepared to face these terrible situations that I have been trying without any kind of passion or exaggeration to lay before you. There is the legal situation. The marriage laws of our country are bringing hundreds and hundreds of women into the militant ranks because we cannot get reform, the kind of reform that women want of our marriage laws. First of all, a girl is held marriageable by English law at the age of 12 years. When I was on trial, they produced a little girl as a witness a little girl who had found something in the neighborhood of the house of the chancellor of the of the chancellor which was destroyed by some women and this little girl was produced as a witness it was said that it was a terrible thing to bring a little girl of 12 years of age and put her in the witness box in a court of law i agreed but i pointed out to the judge and the jury that one of the reasons why women were in revolt was because that little girl whose head just appeared over the top of the witness box was considered old enough by the laws of her country to take upon herself the terrible responsibilities of wifehood and motherhood. And women could not get it altered. No politicians would listen to us when we asked to have the marriage law altered in that particular. Then the position of the wife. It is very frequently said that every woman who wants a vote wants a vote because she has been disappointed, because she has not been chosen to be a wife. Well, I can assure you that if most women made a study of the laws before they decided to get married, a great many women would seriously consider whether it was worthwhile, whether the price was not too heavy. 
because according to English law, a woman may toil all her life for her husband and her family. She may work in her husband's business. She may help him to build up the family income. And if he chooses, at the end of a long life, to take every penny of the money that woman has helped to earn away from her and her children, he can do it, and she has no redress. She may, at the end of a long and hard life, find herself and her children absolutely penniless because her husband has chosen to will the money away from her. So that you see, when you look at it from the legal point of view, it is not such a very, very great gain to become a wife in my country. There are a great many risks that go along with it. Then take her as a mother. If the child of two parents has any property inherited from relatives, and that child dies before it is of age to make a will, or without making a will, the only person who inherits the property of that child is the child's father. The mother does not exist as her child's heir at all, and during the family's lifetime she not only cannot inherit from her child, but she has no voice whatever in deciding the life of her child. Her husband can give the child away to be educated somewhere else, or he can bring whomever he pleases into the house to educate the child. He decides absolutely the conditions in which that child is to live. He decides how that child is to be educated. He can even decide what religion that child is to profess, and the mother's consent is not obtained to any of these decisions. Women are trying to alter it, have tried for generations, but they cannot because the legislatures have no time to listen to the opinions and the desires of people without a vote. Well then, when it comes to the question of how people are to get out of marriage if they are unhappy under the laws of divorce, the English law of divorce is the most scandalous divorce law in the civilized world. There may be a few states in America, and I believe in Canada, where the same law obtains, but the English divorce law is in itself such a stigma upon women, such a degradation to women, such an invitation to immorality on the part of the married man, that I think that divorce law in and of itself would justify rebellion on the part of the women. You could register in law unequal standards of morals in marriage, and a married man is encouraged by law to think that he can make as many lapses as he thinks fit in marital fidelity. Whereas if one act of infidelity is proved against her, the husband can rid, her, can rid of her by divorce, can take her children away from her, and make her a social outcast. Women who have been clamoring for an equal divorce law for generations cannot get any attention. Well now, we have a royal commission on divorce, and we have had a report, but there is no security for women that they are to have justice under a new law, so long as men are chosen by men to legislate, and those men are likely to register the moral opinions of men, not the moral opinions of women in legislation. We have to look facts in the face, part 
of the militant movement for women's suffrage has had that effect, that women have learned to look facts in the face. They have gotten rid of sentimentalities. They are looking at actual facts. And when anti-suffragists talk about chivalry, and when they talk about putting women on pedestals and guarding them from all the difficulties and dangers of life, we look to the facts in life as we see them and we say, women have every reason to distrust that kind of thing, every reason to be dissatisfied. And we want to know the truth, however bad it is, and we face that truth because it is only through knowing the truth that he will ever get to anything better. We are determined to have these things faced and cleared up, and it is absolutely ridiculous to say to women that they can safely trust their interests in the hands of men who have already registered in the legislation of their country. A standard of morals so unequal for both sexes as we find on the statute books of England today. When the Divorce Commission sat, evidence was given by all kinds of people. And women had the experience of reading in the newspapers the evidence of the man who had been chosen by other men to preside over the divorce court. The judge whose duty it was to decide what was legal cruelty and decide whether women were to continue to be bound to their husbands or not. What did he say? I'm glad to think that he is not in a position to give effect to his ideas anymore. He now adorns the House of Lords, but he was still judge of the divorce court when he said that in his opinion, the wise wife was the woman who closed her eyes to the moral failings of her husband, and that was the man, women in this meeting, who had for years decided what was legal cruelty and what women were to endure or what they were not to endure in that relationship of husband and wife. Well, can you wonder that all these things make us more militant? It seems to me that once you look at the things from the woman's point of view, once you cease to listen to politicians, once you cease to allow yourself to look at the facts of life through men's spectacles, but look at them through your own, every day that passes you are having fresh illustrations of the need there is for women to refuse to wait any longer for enfranchisement. Then the latest manifestations. The latest cause of militancy has been the breaking of the great conspiracy of silence with regards to moral questions and the question of social disease that we have had during the last few years. I want to offer my testimony of gratitude to women, like the lady who presides over us today, and to the many of the medical men of the United States in making a lead in that direction. Before some of the suffragettes had the courage even to study the question, these people spoke out. The medical profession in America has led the way. And through Dr. Prince Morrow and other men whose names we honor, we are at last beginning to know the real facts of the situation. We know this. 
that whatever women's wishes might be, it is their duty for the sake of the race itself to save the race, to insist upon having this question of the moral health of the nation approached from the woman's point of view and settled by women in cooperation with men. It is our business to show the close relationship there is between the appalling state of social health and the political degradation of women. The two things go hand in hand. I have been reading a great many articles by very profound thinkers lately, and I see that somehow or another, when you get men writing about them, even the best of men, they do evade the real issue, and that is the status of women. We see women so clearly. The fact that the, the only way to deal with this thing is to raise the status of women. First the political status, then the industrial and the social status of women. You must make women count as much as men. You must have an equal standard of morals, and the only way to enforce that is through giving women political power, so that you can get that equal moral standard registered in the laws of the country. It is the only way. I don't know whether men sufficiently realize it, but we women have nerved themselves to speak out on this question. First of all, we feel that when it is most important, as women should know it. Ten years ago, it would have been impossible for any woman or any man to speak openly upon that question on any platform, because women have been taught that they must keep their eyes closed to all these things. Women have been taught they must ignore the fact, even that a large section of their sex were living lives of degradation and outlawry. If they knew of it at all, they were told in vague terms that it was in order to make the lives of the rest of the women safe. They were told it was a necessary evil. They were told it was something that the good woman does not understand and must not know anything about. All that is now at an end. Women are refusing, men in this meeting, even in, even if that were were true to have their lives made safe at the expense of their sisters. The women are determined, a good deal of the opposition to women's suffrage, who realize that once you get women's suffrage, a great many places that are tolerated today will have to disappear. It is perhaps a hard saying for many men that there will have to be self-control and an equal standard of morals. But the best men now, the scientists of every country, are supporting the woman's point of view. It was 30 years ago in England that a splendid woman named Josephine Butler fought to establish an equal moral code for both sexes. She fought all her life. She was stoned. She was hooted. Her meetings were broken up and her life was made absolutely dangerous. And yet that woman persisted, and she, and she secured the repeal of certain laws related to prostitution, which disgraced the statute books of our country. In those days, the doctors were against her. Practically everybody was against her. Men were told that it was necessary for their health that we should have an unequal moral code that it is all done away with, and the foremost medical men and the foremost scientists are now agreeing with the women. 
they are agreeing with the women that it is quite possible and it is necessary for the sake of the race itself that this equal moral code shall be established. Well, it is probably difficult. It is perhaps going to be difficult for generations, but it is to come and it is out of the women's movement that it is of education who have the benefit of medical training and who have had the benefit of legal training and are informing their sex upon this question. And there is good, there is a good deal of opposition coming to it from strange directions. Even people who have self-appointed themselves as the custodians of public morals are opposing the facts being told. One of the strangest things that I have experienced for years is the fact that in New York, quite recently, copies of our paper, The Suffragette, in which articles were written by my daughter quoting the opinions of medical men all over the world on this question and relying on those quotations as statement of fact, were offered for sale, and an attempt, a successful attempt temporarily, was made to prevent that paper being sold because it contained these articles telling the truth. And a book containing the articles in collected form prefaced with an article telling why this book was written had also had an attack upon it by that self-constituted guardian of public morals, Mr. Comstock, supported by certain sections of the American press. While that book is here tonight, that book is on sale. That book was written not for people of my age, not for people who, if there are dangers to be faced, have either escaped or suffered them. That book was written for young people. That book was written so that women should know. What is the use of locking the stable after the horse is stolen? Prevention is better than cure. This book was written to convince everybody of the danger, to point out the plain facts of the situation, and to convince enough people that only through the emancipation of women, only through the uplifting of women, can you ever effectively deal with the situation. We have tried, we women, for generations to undo some of this evil. We have had our rescue societies, we have made all kinds of efforts, we have taken the poor, unfortunate children who have been the outcome of this unequal code of morals between men and women. And what has happened? Matters have become sadly worse. We have scratched on the surface instead of cutting out the root of evil. All that has changed. Today, women are working in my country, are sacrificing and are suffering to win the political enfranchisement of their sex so that we may get better laws and better administration of the laws. I could go on tonight pointing out to you how in my country, small crimes against property, small thefts, small injuries to property are punished more severely than are any crimes committed against the physical and moral integrity of members of my sex. I think I have said enough, at least, to make you understand that this uprising on the part of the British women has as much justification, as much provocation, as any uprising on the part of men in their desire for political liberty in the past. We are not working to get the vote. We are not going to prison to get the vote, merely to say we have the vote. We are going through all of this to get the vote 
so that by means of the vote, we can bring about better conditions, not only for ourselves, but for the community as a whole. Men have done splendid things in this world. They have made great achievements in engineering. They have done splendid organization work, but they have failed miserably when it has come to dealing with the lives of human beings. They stand self-possessed failures because the problems that perplex civilization are absolutely appalling today. Well, that is the function of women in life. It is our business to care for human beings, and we are determined that we must come without delay to the saving of the race. The race must be saved, and it can only be saved through the emancipation of women. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to say that I am very thankful to you for listening to me here tonight. I am glad if I have been able to, even a small extent, to explain something of the English situation. I want to say that I am not here to apologize. I do not care very much, even whether you really understand. Because when you are in a fighting movement, a movement which every fiber of your being has forced you to enter, it is not the approval of other human beings that you want. You are so concentrated on your subject and on your object that you mean to achieve that even if the whole world was up in arms against you. So I'm not here tonight to apologize or to win very much your approbation. People have said, why does Miss Pankhurst come to America? Has she come to America to rouse American women to be militant? No, I have not come to America to arouse American women to be militant. I believe that American women, as their earnestness increases, as they realize the need for the enfranchisement of their sex, will find for themselves the best way to secure that object. Even each nation must work out its own salvation, and so the American people will find their own way and use their own methods capably. Other people have said, what right has Miss Pankhurst to come to America and ask for American dollars? Well, I think I have the right that all oppressed people have to ask for practical sympathy of others freer than themselves. Your right to send to France and ask for help was never questioned. You did it and you got that help. Men of all nationalities have come to America and they have not gone away empty-handed because American sympathy has been extended to struggling peoples all over the world. In England, if you could understand it, there is the most pathetic and most courageous fight going on because you find the people whom you have been accustomed to look upon as weak and reliant. The people you have always thought leaned upon other people for protection have stood up and are fighting for themselves. Women have found a new kind of self-respect, a new kind of energy, a new kind of strength. And I think that all of the oppressed peoples who might claim your sympathy and support, it is women who are fighting this fight unknown in the history of humanity before fighting this fight in the 20th century for greater powers of self-development, self-expression, and self-government, and very well might attract the sympathy and practical help of American people.
There hasn't been a victory the women of America have won that we have not rejoiced in. I think as we have read month by month of the new states that have been added to the list of fully enfranchised states, perhaps we who know how hard the fight is have rejoiced even more than American women themselves. I have heard cheers ring out in a meeting in London when the news of some new state being added to the list was given. Cheers louder and more enthusiastic than I have ever heard for any victory in an American meeting. It is very true that those who are fighting a hard battle, those who are sacrificing greatly in order to win a victory, appreciate victories and are more enthusiastic when victories are won. We have rejoiced wholeheartedly in your victories. We feel that those victories have been easier perhaps because of the hard times that we are having, because of our militant movement in the storm center of the suffrage movement, have gone waves that have helped to rouse women all over the world. You could only explain the strange phenomena in that way. Ten years ago, there was hardly any woman suffrage movement at all, not even in China and Japan, in India and Turkey. Now everywhere women are rising up, and asking for these larger opportunities, which modern conditions demand that women should have. And we women think that we have helped. Well, if we have helped at all, if, as has been said from the chair tonight, we have helped to rouse suffrage enthusiasm in Connecticut, can you blame me very much if I come and tell you of the desperate struggle we are having, of how the government is trying to break us down in every possible way? even by involving us in lawsuits and trying to frighten our subscribers by threatening to prosecute even people who help us by subscribing money. Can you wonder, I come over here to America. Have you read about American dollars that have been given the Irish lawbreakers? So here I am. I come in the intervals of prison appearance I come after having been four times imprisoned under the Cat and Mouse Act, probably going back to be rearrested as soon as I set my foot on British soil. I come to ask you to help us win this fight. If we win it, this hardest of all fights, then to be sure in the future, it is going to be made easier for women all over the world to win their fight when their time comes. So I make no apologies for coming, and I make no apologies, Mrs. Hepburn, for asking this audience if any of them feel inclined to help me to take back some money from America and put it with the money that I have known our women are, ra are raising by desperate personal sacrifice at home, so that when we begin our next year's campaign, facing a general election, as probably we shall face next year, our anxieties on the money side will not be so heavy as they could have been if I had not been if I had not found strength and health enough to come and carry out this somewhat arduous tour in the United States of America. During her fundraising tour, Emmeline Pankhurst collected fourteen hundred United States dollars in Hartford, Connecticut. After speaking, she was taken to the home of Mrs. Hepburn, where a reception was held with about 60 suffragist workers. 
Hepburn's daughter, Catherine, future film star, was six years old at that time.